You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Welcome to HeadX, hosted by Martin Betts. This podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector. Welcome to the higher education experience. Welcome back to HeadX, everybody, and I'm really thrilled to be joined again today as a co-host by Sue Kakonis, the Chief Academic Officer of OES. Hi, hi there, Sue. How are you? Oh, excellent, Martin. Really um, delighted to be back on the program again. We had a great fun talking about Anne Kirshner a few weeks ago and um, reflecting on the episode of a, of a new interim president of a prestigious US university, and I'm Really pleased that we've got um, an interesting guest from another different part of the world to dissect and and comment on in our interview today. And um, I don't know what your experience is, Sue, but the comparisons between the UK and the Australian university environments is something that I've had a lot of thoughts about having spent so much time, you know, probably equal parts of my career working in those two environments. I, I, I know that OES is active in obviously grown out of Australia, but also active in the UK as well. What, what's your understanding personally and the understanding that the company has about the similarities and differences between the UK and the Australian university environment? Really good question, Martin. Look, I think globally, both Australia and the UK universities are seen as a great destination internationally. So they've got a very good reputation for quality. I think that that that's that's very, very clear. I think, though, Australia, if I reflect on the difference between Australia and the UK, Australia being a newer entrant into the sector, if you like, even though we've been around for a while, but I think our oldest university is only like 133 years old. We, I think that we, we've benefited perhaps from having less of the legacy traditions that you have when you have, you know, I think when you have a... a a more established sector, there are absolutely great things that come with that from a historical point of view. But when you're a new entrant, you're a little bit more hungry and a little bit more innovative. And I, and I think the Australian university sector has grown up with the benefit of seeing what's happened around the world um, as it was being formed. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation, actually. And I think that um, leaves us here sometimes better able to be agile and better able to be innovative and better able to break free from whatever shackles that we have from our own um, our own legacy but um the other thing that constrains us as well as history is is the constraint that government policy quite often provides and i've been i've been really interested to in this accord year to see how much a change of government over a year ago now in Australia has unleashed a different conversation here and how much the conversation in UK appears to be changing. There's been lots of commentary there around, around a current government that's even starting to voice views about whether too many people go to university and whether university degrees are leading to jobs or not. But it leaves me thinking just how much our different university markets are dependent upon the tone of government policy and the direction of government policy in achieving growth and how they approach things. Is, is that something that you 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 have to be mindful of in the work that you do at OES? Absolutely. Yeah, I, you know, like, let's just talk about jobs ready graduate package, for example, you know, a piece of policy that was, was really intended to achieve something, but perversely probably had a, a bit of an adverse effect in terms of driving students to 
take you know, higher funded courses. But unfortunately, from a university point of view, if you're in a capped environment and you've got higher funded courses, then you know, it, it's actually a little bit more challenging to keep growing those at the expense of some of your other courses. So I think that had a perverse effect. And I think um, it's interesting to see what's going to coming out, coming out of the accord. Lots of discussion about equity students, which I think is very positive, uh, quite a different focus. And I think, you know, I think, I think we're going to learn, I think the devil will be in the detail and uh, we'll be having some, some, a far better understanding of that as we head towards uh, the end of the year. Yes, well, that devil and that detail and that end of year are not so far away now. So um, I think we're all sharing that, that emerging drum roll of what we'll be um, left with to move on with in, in next year. And look, um, different environments between UK and US, different government approaches in those two contexts, and they change and wax and wane at different times. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'll make the comment here that I'm, I'm also mindful that different leaders of our universities, different vice chancellors and their leadership teams have different predispositions to what their priorities are. You've mentioned equity there, and we might return to that one after the conversation we were about to have. The other one that that always um, interests me is the extent to which a leader embraces a digital future. And I think we've got great variety in that in leaders in both US and um, in UK, US indeed, and, and, and in Australia. And one this week that has a very strong disposition to seeing a very strongly important digital future. And that, I think, also plays out in, in how they then commit to partnerships with tech companies in different ways, which the area of partnerships, of course, is hugely important to OES and what it does um, and how it operates. Do you want to talk about how OES views its partnerships with universities and why that's so important to you? This is a big topic about partnering. And, and I think um, Alex, who you're about to interview, has got a long history history in this space and that's you know that's where I came across him uh, with us where Alex and I crossed paths back at Swinburne which was our founding partnership and that was a partnership obviously between Swinburne University and um, SEEK and that built OES. I think partnerships are really important for universities to ask themselves what can we do really well internally and what if we partner with industry can we accelerate can we get better quality or can we do um, in a way that can we reach, for example, markets that we wouldn't be able to reach if it was just left to ourselves? So I think partnerships serve a really important purpose. And that could be partnerships with research, can be partnerships with industry to make sure that the employability and that you're embedding all the learning and teaching that's really critical for the, the graduate outcomes. Or it can be partnerships as like the um, online program manager partnerships that we run with our partners which is about how do you get excellence in online learning? How do you reach uh, non-traditional students? How do you um, ensure that you can scale a really high-quality product? Well, there you go. That's a good commentary on the um, on the landscape of partnerships uh, there, Sue. And you, you've talked about your prior knowledge of, um, of Alex, our guest for today from Swinburne. I've known him from both his time at Swinburne and RMIT in a slightly different guise from you. And I'm really thrilled that he's back on the podcast. He was a guest of ours three years ago when he was here still in Australia. But we'll hear from him and his views about some of those topics of the difference between the UK and the Australian environment, the impact of government policy, your very important point about equity and, and the place of technology and partnerships. We'll hear from Alex Suvich about those matters straight after this word from our sponsors. Enjoying the HeadX podcast? 
you should check out The Thought Bubble, a podcast series where cross-disciplinary experts from all around the world share insights about emerging technologies and all the ways in which they can transform how we teach, learn, evaluate and experience higher education. Hear from Google, Meta, Holland IQ, KPMG, Duolingo and more. Find The Thought Bubble wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm joined today on HeadX by Professor Alex Subich. And Alex has been the Vice Chancellor of Aston University in the UK for, I think it's just over a year now, Alex. Is that right? That's correct. About 14 months now, but who's counting? I can count on you of having been a very successful Deputy Vice Chancellor at both RMIT and Swinburne University in Australia before taking up this role. Um, you're now, Alex, in a perfect position to contrast the the context, the landscape and the policy differences and maybe what the trajectory and future directions are for both UK and Australian higher education environments, having spent so long in Australia and now a very, I'm sure, a very full um, just over a year, 14 months in the UK. Um, in that time, you've just launched a new strategy for Aston. You're, you're setting it on a path towards 2030. It's a university of a genre there in the UK that I know well from my time in the UK. And you've called your strategy our strategy for a changing world. We might come back to that. Um, and it's a, a direction for Aston that celebrates being inclusive, being entrepreneurial, and seeking to be transformation, transformational. Alex, with that introduction, a very warm welcome to you back to HeadX. Thank you, Martin, and truly a pleasure to reconnect with you. You've been doing a great job since I left. Well, look, it was a long time ago, and you were one of the very first guests on the HeadX podcast in October 2020. That's three years ago. Doesn't seem possible, does it? When I'm sure we'll all remember the world was a similarly troubled, but a very different sort of place. You were a DVC at RMIT at the time. And in the three years since, you've continued to lead at an Australian university for two of those years through the pandemic and coming out the other side of it before taking the work, the, the wheel, as it were, at Aston University in the UK, as the sector there is, um, in contrast to where we are now in Australia, you're looking forward to a forthcoming election. You're maybe looking ahead to a possible change of government, who can say? And you're seeing different, but your own major challenges for your higher education system in the UK. I wonder if just in starting this off, if we pick up the pieces from three years ago, Describe how the world you personally, um, the world that you've operated in has changed over the last three years and what changes you feel you personally now need to best prepare for in your role? It's almost like looking at three different periods of evolution. One is the pre-pandemic, one is the pandemic period, and now the post-pandemic period. And it has uh, a number of different implications, the way I see it. Last time we spoke, as you said, it was the, during the pandemic period. And that was a significant, I would say, shock to the system globally, as well as in Australia, where we were at that time in terms of rapid move to digital education, online learning resources, learning how to connect and collaborate in different manner, being far more conscious of, of safety and well-being on campus and off campus and so on. What I'm seeing, and obviously also uh, uh, re-evaluating our financial models and operating models being faced with border closures and 
and and constrained international recruitment. That were that were very significant, very significant disruptive disruptive elements to the sector in Australia as well as worldwide. And obviously, different countries tackled those challenges in different ways. Coming out of that pandemic, uh, uh, I basically entered a higher education system in UK that I suspect was maybe about a few months or six months, I think, uh, out of the pandemic kind of regime earlier than the Australian regime. I think that transition was done a little bit more earlier and more effective, I think, in UK. However, what I found here is that some of the challenges that we had to tackle in Australia in the higher education sector over the past decade, the declining funding, the increasing internationalization and developing much more effective systems and approaches to recruiting international students in collaboration with government agencies and, and the private sector, as well as, you know, as well as advancing the digital transformation agenda across the sector. Some of those elements, I would say, are in progress in UK, but perhaps have not progressed as much as institutions where I've led those agendas. So post-pandemic, the UK government is still, I think, re-evaluating and, and thinking about what does blended learning or digitally enhanced learning or online learning component mean for on campus. That, that clarity is still not there. In, in fact, I can sense even some fear uh, uh, in, in terms of policymakers, you know, what will digital transformation online learning, you know, do to the quality of education and experience in, in the student population or the student experience on campus. That, that is a piece that, that I think is still evolving here. The financial model that higher education sector in UK is exposed to is not a sustainable model. You know, for 10 years, you know, fees, home student fees have been frozen. Uh, there's no additional funding, but there are ex increasing pressures on the higher education system to deliver and to take responsibility for many things, you know, including access and participation, including employability success, mental health, you know, well-being and so on, none of which are being funded through any particular scheme or in a systemic manner. Uh, while we know that in Australia, uh, there have been, you know, serious attempts to provide, if not dividends, then some kind of incentives and bonuses for graduate outcomes performance, for employability performance, for industry and business engagement, for student satisfaction in improvement, and so on. So it's almost like that old, you know, management fallacy. You know, you you hope for outcome A, but you know, but you're still stuck in in, in the approach to B, right? Yes. I think, I think that I'm seeing a far more regulated environment in UK than in Australia. That occasionally does stifle innovation in operating models, business models, in educational models in UK. And that, I think, is something that probably is, uh, is a leftover from the past, you know, almost like a public service culture, you know, coming out of government, as opposed to, as opposed to maybe a refreshed regulatory framework and refreshed kind of policy framework that does encourage, incentivize and support innovation. And I think that is the change that I think we will be possibly, I think, looking at in the following years. And that's certainly something that the higher education sector in UK is, is uh, promoting, is, in, is lobbying for, is asking for. 
but admittedly, many of the universities are yet to demonstrate, you know, examples of that. Fascinating. That's um, that's a very interesting traverse through the journey of a of a very challenging three years, and what sounds like a quite different environment, and uh, an environment in which, in your new role, you've taken now just over twelve months to develop and launch a new strategy for your institution. Um, and I wonder, can you explain how you went about developing that strategy? With the whole, as I presume you did, with the whole of the Aston stakeholder community and what you've learned along the way about that community and, and that university to develop that strategy. Wonderful question, Martin. Uh, truly, it was a 12-month a twelve month journey to reach to reach this outcome, to reach the 2030 strategy at Aston University. And, and I did start that journey very early on at the, at, at, at the commencement of my tenure here Eston. As you know from our previous discussions in the past, I'm a true believer of that co-design, co-creation approach, right? I've done that through many years with industry and business. I've done that with the teams I've led, uh, you know, whether that related to structures and strategies or to projects, programs, or to national hubs that I've created under the Industry 4.0, uh, Prime Minister's Task Force, and so on. Co-design, co-creation is really the fundamental model. And that's how I've approached, that's how I've approached the Aston 2030 strategy development. It involved a very elaborate engagement, engagement uh, uh, model, both internally, externally, you know, with students, with, with alumni, with industry and business, multiple forums, senior leadership retreats and planning retreats, and so on, surveys, and so on. Uh, one thing that actually kicked off this, this whole journey of developing the strategy was a question that I've asked everyone, our students, our alumni, our staff, industry and business. I've even you know, engaged in a number of forums with our alumni, East Coast US, West Coast US, across Europe, and so on, on same topics. I think, I think I've had a, more than 1,000 engagement meetings and forums over that period. Uh, if I if I count correctly, so the question I asked them at the very outset, which three words would describe us? Mm. You know, which three words, if you had to identify three words, would describe Aston? Aston that was, Aston that is, Aston that will be or should be, because strategy is not something you insert on the top whenever a new leader comes. As strategy is something you need to discover by awakening the organizational memory, the many generational input from the very beginning to today. It doesn't start with a new leader. It doesn't start with a previous leader. It's something that will emerge by awakening the organizational memory and by also looking into the future, what that means. So those three words uncovered many, many interesting conversations. It provoked many interesting conversations internally and externally. And slowly, we converged towards three words that describe us and that describe Aston 2030. And the three words we've used also in our story, the video that we've produced to tell our story, to complement the, the, the published strategy that we've launched a few weeks ago internally and that we are launching publicly this week, which is serendipitous, Matt, because it's coming out this week on Thursday 
for public for public consumption, if I can say that. Those three words that came out overwhelmingly supported by our stakeholders were inclusive, entrepreneurial, transformational. Those three words say a lot, say a lot, and mean a lot. And those three words, I think, are our North Star in this changing world. And those three words, the focus on these three important elements also informs the change in our operating model, business model. What do we actually focus on, how we go about it, and what we aim to deliver? From that, we've unfolded the rest of the the rest of the strategy, which which is also about, you know, also about future proofing this organization. You know, as we said, in a changing world that, that's increasingly unpredictable, complex, concerning, but also as we produce our graduates for that kind of a world, the question is, how do you prepare students for work and life in a world that's changing so rapidly, right? Fantastic, Alex. That's um, a fascinating explanation of the um, of the journey and of the process and of the distinctiveness of your strategy. And look, I've always known you as someone really committed, and you've re you've hinted at that in talking about the work that you did with the Prime Minister's Task Force here in Australia before before leaving these shores. You've always been someone I've known to be committed to technological innovation and partnerships between universities and the corporate world. And what, I wonder if you can tell us what part technology and partnerships, with those three words at the heart of what's distinctive about Aston, what part technology and partnerships play in the landscape at Aston compared with what your prior experience was in Swinburne and RMIT? Are they similar? Univers is it a similar university to those those genres of university in Australia? And I. Are they similarly important as principles for you and how you're seeing the future at Aston now? I believe that, uh, which is one of the reasons why I felt I fit here, because you always look for fit uh, between yourself and the organization you aim to lead. Uh, Aston University, as you probably know, Martin, was one of those quintessential UK colleges of advanced technology. And very early on, this was established you know, over a hundred years ago, as the principal school of, of 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 technology manufacturing in the West Midlands, where the first industrial revolution was born, so this institution emerged out of the first industrial revolution as the first college of advanced technology in the Midlands. You know, that's its history. They are the bones of this organization. So, if I compare this with the Australian ecosystem. Uh, I see Aston University very, very similar or having similar history and DNA like our technological universities, technology network of university, ATN in Australia. Many, many similarities in terms of history, age, focus, the role they have in society, industry and business. Clearly, in this day and age, when we talk about technology, we're talking about digital technologies. We live in a digital era, in a digital economy. The fourth industrial revolution that we are well and truly emerged in is a digitalization, a digital technology revolution. And every next one, whether we call it the fifth or the sixth, or whether we just morph this into ongoing digital transformation is shaped and will be shaped by digital transformation and digital technologies of the future as well. So basically 
digital technologies are here to stay. They're impacting every sector, every segment of our lives, every part of our society. And that's important to note because it will be impossible to envision any job that our students might take or any research that our researchers might undertake or any any economic advancement or improvement in SMEs or businesses without seeing a profound role that digitalization and digital technologies play in that domain. So therefore, digital literacy is something that everybody needs to own and have. Having said that, the Aston 2030 strategy has placed digital innovation at the heart of the strategy because it informs everything. It informs our approach to education, our approach to research, our approach to engaging with business and industry and society. Uh, some of the early advancements in that regard, we're already seeing it, Aston. We've launched the Aston Digital Futures Institute to play that connector role, integrator role across the whole of the university, connecting all of our digital know-how and assets across the university to drive that interdisciplinary integrative approach to inform teaching and learning, to inform research, to inform innovation, to inform engagement with business and industry, and also to drive digital inclusion. Part of that is also our strategy of establishing a digital skills academy with the private sector that basically is open to the community, that runs boot camps for the community. We know from previous industrial revolutions that, that the technological advancements you know, were advancing in a very fast track manner, leaving segments of society behind too often. That was the case in first and second and third. The societal disruptions were tremendous because of that. And we know from research that if educational institutions, if education and training advance in parallel with technology, or even, even faster than technological advancement by looking into the future, that, that social pain is minimized and perhaps even alleviated. And the digital inclusion piece addresses that aspect of leaving communities behind. We are very much conscious of that. So what we are doing is we are reshaping how we operate in terms of the whole of enterprise and how we engage with the outside world by building on digital innovation as the platform, ensuring that first we are inclusive in that regard as well. So that's that digital inclusion from, from that perspective, that we are entrepreneurial which means we are innovating and creating tangible practical outcomes that actually support inclusive growth, not any economic growth, but inclusive growth, and that we are transformational and that we can measure the impact that we are creating through that work. We are living and working in the most super diverse city in UK, together perhaps with London. These are the most super diverse cities in UK, where you have 180 languages spoken, 180 different cultures and backgrounds. This is a true melting pot, one of the youngest cities in Europe and one of the most diverse cities in Europe. Not focusing on inclusion would be an opportunity missed for everyone. So that inclusion coupled with entrepreneurial approach and transformational approach is also part of the digital agenda and technological agenda here. And the, the industry partners that I've you know, 
partnered during my journey, especially the big digital companies like, you know, AWS, Amazon, and Siemens, and Adobe, and some of those global companies that also have vast networks of customers, of SMEs, supply chains, partners. I'm bringing them along on this journey, so they are also part of our journey here at Aston, just like I've taken them on their journey in Australia. I see partnerships as a long, lifelong, lifelong adventure, lifelong effort, rather than only transactional or project-based. Fascinating story, Alex. And you've you've articulated the the entrepreneurial and the transformative part of um, that distinctiveness that you've uncovered in the in the strategic memory of Aston, as I think you put it. But you've also given really strong emphasis through the digi- the digital lens on that concept of being inclusive. And I, I I don't know how much you've paid attention to it from afar, but one of the dominant issues in 2023 here in Australia has been following a, an election of a new government, the playing out of an, a university's accord to develop a long-term vision for our sector in this part of the world. That has at its heart increasing equity student group access to higher education in Australia. And I've noted with interest that in the UK, it's just turned 60 years from the publication of a Robbins report that had behind it the Robbins principle that was committed to giving equitable access to university education in the UK for everyone that had the potential to benefit from it. But I'm seeing data coming through and even commentary with the current government that you have questioning whether the UK is educating too many students in your society. I imagine that there's some dissonance between that and your strategy and your own personal beliefs and ambitions. And I wonder if you can help us understand where does Aston stand on increasing equity access and growing its student numbers in the future in this very challenging financial environment? It's a very, very important topic. And I must say, since arriving in the UK, I've noticed that that policy, uh, multi-decade policy, decadal policy, has actually produced some really good outcomes. There is a concerted effort, concerted focus on accessing participation. Each institution needs to have and demonstrate comprehensive plans and targets and reports on them. I think it's an area that's been, I think, uh, that has matured significantly here. And I was pleased to see that. Uh, In Australia, I think we've always instinctively known that that's important. And many institutions, across the university sector in Australia have also, to some extent, pursued that, perhaps not in a structured and comprehensive manner as in UK. This is an area I think that UK over the years, I think, has has advanced to a certain extent, I think, uh, well. Uh, Aston University is obviously very committed to this. I mean, if I share with you some data, I think that's very telling about this, and I think perhaps puts to bed some of the comments that, that might not be helped from, from government, right? 45% of all undergraduate students commencing studies at Aston University come from households with 25,000 pounds or less total household revenue. But look at this. When they leave Aston, Aston is runner-up University of the Year by Times, Sunday Times this year, as second in the country for graduate outcomes for employment. And the happy social mobility index that was just released a week ago, we are second in the country for social mobility, which gauges 
the employment and salaries five years out of out of university. So how can that be? What has happened in the meantime? What has happened is Aston happened in the between. Aston happened, education happened, high education transformation happened. You don't need any further evidence to show what transformational power higher education has. There have been also debates about, you know, how can we have, you know, these grades at A level before students come into universities and then they finish universities with much higher success rate in terms of grades. Not understanding that human development is a continuum and that maturity of learning and support mechanism that you provide can make a huge difference. So I think sometimes this rhetoric is not helpful. I think that we need to look at evidence. We need to look at data. I think that graduate outcomes, social mobility tell us a lot. They show how we are improving lives, how we are creating workforce that actually has the capability to drive high value economy and, and bring countries to a level where they're much more competitive globally. How you can address the skill gap, the looming skill gap, especially in the advanced technology areas and so on. So I think it's a it's a topic where we have to have a much more considered and comprehensive approach rather than perhaps political kind of uh, approach that, that sometimes it's not helpful. Uh, going forward, Aston, you know, by definition, as we said, one of our three power words is inclusive. We will be continuing to focus on that element and, and to, to ensure that we do it well. What I think clouds the debate, Martin, a little bit is, is that if we don't all realize that if you are pursuing equity and participation at higher level, you also need to ensure that your university support systems at a level that can support that transformation and growth. At Aston, there's been a lot of effort to establish mechanisms to support employability skills, employment, you know, to support soft skills, if you want to call them, or, you know, I like to call them power skills because they empower you to be more successful. So many of these support mechanisms need to be in place to ensure that students can successfully progress and become as successful as measured by graduate outcomes and social mobility. That's something that we need to talk more about because it's not just about the input, it's about what do you do with the input and how do you support and how do you enable individuals to reach their full potential, to make the most of the talent, which is I think a fundamental question, right? And to help them with their own work and their own effort achieve the utmost best which can only, only aid our society. I think that's what's important. And it's important to, I think, uh, support and value the right outcomes, you know, and, and to support them financially as well. Because just like when we are talking about research outcomes and we support excellence in research, well, we need to financially support also excellence in employability, excellence in social mobility, because from a social point of view, that might have even greater impact. That's um, some very interesting thoughts there, Alex, as always. And look, a lot of your thinking that I was exposed to when you're in Australia is sort of harks back to, again, that, that work that you were doing for the Prime Minister's Task Force and your commitment towards Industry 4.0 and the work of Australian universities, particularly in their activities in the fields of 
of disciplines like engineering and business and how they were embracing digital innovation in doing that. With everything you've just said there about um, inclusion and social mobility and the things that are, are, are perhaps coming to the fore now in Australia and have been so dominant in some of the thinking in the UK for some of, some little while, I wonder what your ideas and your views are about the idea of education 4.0, if we use that term, and what and what if that is a language that you'd use, what is your vision for what the future of higher education may become with developments in technology and the changes that our future learners and future university partners, I guess, employers, are looking for from our graduates? Do you see the same sort of revolution happening in Education 4.0 that you led so ably here in Australia in Industry 4.0? I mean that's certainly that's certainly a centerpiece of the Aston 2030 strategy, and and it's it's at the at the front of 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 our transformational agenda. I I can see this evolving at a number of universities at different pace. If you ask me whether it's general across the whole sector, I don't think so. I think there's there's varied varied pace, varied thinking about that, and I think. There will be, I think, a need going forward for some of them to pick up pace, I think, in this regard, because that's what industry and business expect. I've just held a, uh, uh, we just had a Birmingham Tech Week here and with, you know, thousands of tech leaders and innovators converging into Birmingham. And it is, you know, it's almost seeing Birmingham becoming again a tech powerhouse in UK as going back into the first industrial revolution when this was the manufacturing powerhouse of the world. And I was really pleased to see that. And what you hear from all those business leaders is that there's no business right now that's not digital to some extent. To do their job, to do their business, to sell their products, to deliver their services, whatever that aspect may be, there is no business that is not a digital business, which obviously then means how can you produce graduates? For the future, how can you create the workforce of the future if they don't have the digital literacy at advanced level, more sophisticated level? I think uh, what we've done in Australia, what I've done with my colleagues under the Prime Minister's Industry for Zero Task Force, I think is a global benchmark. Uh, and I've received that feedback from Siemens and from many others across the world, from Global Federation of Competitiveness Councils in US. Many times, it, in an endorsement that what we've done by establishing the eight industry university hubs around the country, by providing the technology platforms, by developing the new curriculum in Industry 4.0, by bringing industry and universities in each hub around different sector areas, creating thus a portfolio at national level, was really tremendous because what we've done is we've achieved transformation at scale. I've been always led by thinking about how, how do you achieve a transformation at scale? Because transformation at scale leads to impact. It's easy to have a startup. It's easy to run a pilot. The challenge is when you need to scale it up and you need to achieve transformation at scale. That thinking, uh, I've been led by that thinking when I arrived here in Birmingham. What I've done is I've partnered Aston with the Birmingham City, with, with Brantwood SciTech and other stakeholders. And what we've done is We've established and recently we've launched the Birmingham Innovation Quarter, and a new innovation district in the heart of Birmingham. It's part of the city center, but also interfaces with across the canal with some of the most socioeconomically deprived areas. So almost you imagine a Birmingham Innovation Quarter that represents the melting pot at the interface with first world and third world. And it tries to not level up, but unify unify and create create high value jobs 
drive inclusive growth driven by science, technology, and enterprise. I'm very proud of this blueprint because it's it's now integrated within the Our Future City Master Plan for Birmingham. I think it's part of our strategic bid to be part of the UK investment zone so that it creates an incentive for technology partners, for entrepreneurs, for various players in the high-value economy to be consolidated here. What is attractive, what is interesting for that future model of education and research, uh, Martin, that you've asked is, is that at the heart of the Birmingham Innovation Quarter is Aston University with significant space that we are putting forward for that development to bring partners from outside in to, to integrate within this area where you won't see any more by 2030 boundaries between campus, industry, or business entrepreneurs. It will be a true melting pot. So when you walk through this Aston Park in the city center, you might bump into, you know, Adobe people, Microsoft people, Siemens, Jaguar, Land Rover. You might bump into entrepreneurs that are incubating. You might jump, you know, bump into students who are attending boot camps and in the process of driving their own startup. You might see classes that are embedded in business and industry, rather in a lecture theater. You might see events that are pitching or, or promoting new product or service that has emerged out of this incubator. So basically, this is what I call the new model of university for a changing world, where those boundaries between so-called public sector universities and private sector and government are blurred. And that triple helix innovation approach is the blueprint of the Birmingham Innovation Quarter. When that, when those boundaries are blurred and that operating model integrates all those moving parts in our ecosystem, innovation ecosystem, that is the campus, we know that then we have transformed ourselves and that students are better prepared for work. Our staff have better access to opportunities. Innovation becomes the way of working rather than an extracurricular activity. You've mentioned some um, fantastic companies there, Alex, and I, 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 I can almost see this picture of that innovation quarter and, and see the enthusiasm in your eyes and your face light up as you describe it. I also read a little bit about some of the things that beyond your strategy, you've formed partnerships with some of the companies you've mentioned there to not only be part of the innovation agenda, but to embed them in your own teaching and learning practices and your student support. What, what One that I was reading about was... You're signing up as an Adobe Creative Campus, for instance. Can you tell us a little bit more about that or other examples of the technology company partnerships that you've established to drive your teaching and learning agenda at Aston and your support of students to help them complete? I think that, that Adobe example, I think it's a wonderful example to perhaps demonstrate some of the elements of this model that, that we've just discussed. Uh, we've launched, as you as you mentioned, the Adobe Creative Campus for, for West Midlands, for Midlands recently, which is a really deep, comprehensive partnerships with this global technology company that's basically at the creative end of technology, which is extremely important, the creative end of technology, because because that's the part that's relevant to all of our students and disciplines. So how does that work in that comprehensive manner that I've mentioned, that, that informs all those elements that you've highlighted, Martin? So as part of this partnership, we're establishing a digital innovation hub run by students in a space next to our IT help desk. 
students are running that digital innovation hub, supporting staff and students in creative effort, supporting them to learn, to adopt early, to trial and test and play. It's a student-run digital innovation hub. So basically, they're not just you know, getting work experience and it's industry placement. They are running it. They are enterprising. And we're creating that hub for them, run by students, but for staff and students and our partners. Also, we are embedding digital literacy in a module called Aston Power Skill that is in every single course at this university, in every discipline at this university. And Adobe is part of that because it's that creative content production that every student will need to present their work, to communicate their work, to basically capture the outcomes of their work and so on. We're also establishing the Adobe professor that will focus on AI in that content creation. Because if you look at the new Adobe platforms, they are informed by AI, where basically you can create videos, movies, you can create animated content, stories, and storytelling in a in a fraction of time, in fact, actually in minutes, by using AI technologies. What we've done as part of this is we've established an AI platform across the whole enterprise, perhaps the first in UK, where we've found solutions to roll out AI across the enterprise that will not harness our data. So privacy of data is guaranteed. That is a very innovative solution. So all of our staff and students have access to AI. So AI is part of that Adobe strategy as well, embedded in creating that content. And obviously the Digital Futures Institute I've mentioned is the one that then works with our technology partners to perhaps push the boundaries and create solutions of the future that might find their way in the next versions, in the next platforms going forward. So it's a very comprehensive kind of an integrated approach that touches every element of our business. And that's something that we aim to do with other partners that we select and that we, where we have kind of a common, common interest and common understanding of how do we work together. That sounds absolutely fascinating, Alex. And I'm, look, I could talk about this sort of thing with you forever, but um, I know that you're a busy vice chancellor and you've got things that you've got a university to run. Um, but I wonder, just in bringing this interview towards a close, you, you've 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 had a long time leading leading edge and benchmarked. You use the word, but I'll I'll use it too because I fully sign up to it. Benchmarked innovation between Australian universities and business, and here you are. Sounds like you're doing. Exactly the same thing, but even at the greater scale, at the at the heartland of the first industrial revolution. With, with, with this combined UK and Australian perspective that you now have, and this deep understanding, to use your three words, of inclusion, of transformation, and the, the entrepreneurial university, I, those, that term almost goes with how I see a picture of you. What, what, what is your vision of two parts in the world and those three words being the fit that you have with Aston and what you subscribe to yourself. What, what is your vision for the future of global higher education in a changing world? And how both Australian and UK university leaders like you can best lead their institutions to find and achieve that future? It's a powerful, powerful question to end to end this, this conversation, Martin. Uh, if I kind of maybe highlight again those three key powers, inclu inclusive, entrepreneurial transformation. And by the way, our strategy is quite unique, Martin, because at the end of our strategy, we didn't just 
print our internal KPIs. We've worked with Metro Dynamics from Manchester, and you know that area very well, to actually evaluate, calculate accurately as much as you can what those socioeconomic impact measures are. And we've published them in our strategy, showing that if we achieve what we aim to achieve, the impact transformation, these are the socioeconomic measures that will make us stay true. So we've communicated the impact measures, the socioeconomic impact measures we aim to achieve by 2030, not at the end of the journey, but at the beginning of the journey. And that's our North Star. And that's what makes those three words, inclusive, entrepreneurial, transformational, true, because we've closed the loop in our strategy with socioeconomic impact measures that we aim to achieve. That's why we are here. That's our core purpose. All the rest is mechanics. So that I think I'm very proud of. That will stand out because I haven't come across that anyway. Now, back to your to your question, because these three words are the connecting words. So if I, if I define ourselves, our university, as inclusive, entrepreneurial, transformational, what that does is it provides us with kind of almost that, that guidance of who do we want to partner with? And if we partner, what do we want to do together? How do we want to go about it? It's not just what. The three words also describe, describe the how inherently, because we are inclusive, entrepreneurial, and transformational. That describe also the how. I think the future, Martin, holds if we want to be successful, if we want to have that transformational impact, if we want to be also more sustainable, that global collaboration is critical. I think the connecting dots between UK system and Australian system are tremendous. I think it holds fantastic opportunities. I think there's also, I think, a lot to be gained by collaborating also with other university sectors, like in US in particular, because the innovation innovation ecosystem is so mature and it's so advanced. And there's a lot, lot to be gained from that collaboration. Uh, and obviously from in other areas of the world, and especially, especially Asia and Africa, but not just for student recruitment. It is for, it is about learning from each other. It's about collaborating together on major transformational projects. So going forward, looking at Aston, you know, and communicating what that means to us, establishing with our partners, university partners, multiple partners, offshore hubs, offshore, offshore innovation centers, working together to create value for our students, our staff, and our partners will be a centerpiece. And it's not driven just by recruitment, which is the typical model in the sectors today, it will be driven by creating value, driven by our desire to work together to create value for our organizations and for our partners and students. And that is a much more comprehensive way of partnering. And those partnerships will involve not just university partners, but industry partners. And in some cases, those global tech partners might actually be our glue as well, if I can call it that. So, so that global connectivity, but in a much more profound, comprehensive manner, focus on value creation and value realization. I think that's going to be an exciting part of our journey going forward. And I think it holds a lot of promise also for, for global growth and global, global enhancement as well, and certainly better understanding of each other globally. Well, we certainly need a bit more of that at the moment, Alex. And you've, um, you've given us some absolutely fascinating, just like I knew you would, I can't I can't um I can't get over how how the parallels with everything that you were leading so effectively and purposefully in Australia have 
found a new home in another part of the world that I also know so well. And I'm really excited about your vision, your distinctiveness of strategy for Aston. I can see every prospect in that being hugely successful like it already appears to be. But your commitment to those three words as being a little bit more than just words on a strategy paper or or sounds on a video for the university, but things that really are your North Star and illustrating that by how you're making that part of the the walking, the talk of university strategy. Thank you so much for being our guest again here on HeadX today, Alex. We wish you all very well with your journey at Aston. My pleasure, Martin. Wonderful to see you again. Good luck. Well, there you go, Sue. That was Alex Subic, our, our shared friend from Aston University, who we knew in a different guise here in Melbourne and Australia a few years ago. He's, he's outlined a really exciting vision for his new university, Aston University in Birmingham in the UK. What did you make of his vision? I loved it, Martin. Um, and I think Alex is really well placed actually to achieve it. If you look at, at his history at Swinburne, which is a very similar technology origin university that he's come from, uh, his work that he's done with the Australian government on technology 4.0, and then I love the way that he listened to everyone at Aston before forming his strategy. So he listened to the students, he listened to the staff, and he was respectful of the history that they came from. So very tech focused, but he's really taking it forward. You know, I love the idea of the Birmingham innovation, the Aston Park, where you get that melting pot of technology and, and industry and universities. And I think we talked about this last time, Martin. I, you know, universities are in a really unique position. We now have to teach students for, for careers that are going to have technology in it that is emerging over the next two or three years. So I, I think the whole blending that he's, he's keeping those boundaries permeable, you know, and there'll be some challenges in achieving that. But I think in making them permeable will mean that, that as students go through, they're getting the deep academic rigour, but they're also getting the latest innovative thinking from tech companies, from industry. And I think that's going to make, that's going to prepare the students for the future. So I think Alex is right on the money there. Yeah, that's a lovely summary of, of, of what he's articulated so clearly, isn't it? And the idea of doing that, you, you know, he has been so involved in advising our government and our prime minister, um, or a few prime ministers, I dare say, about the emergence of technology. Him putting that into practice in the partnerships with a manufacturing base in the UK, but also trying to apply that in the experience for his students and for Aston's um, teaching and learning community. I found that conversation about the partnership that they've formed with a number of companies. He quoted the Adobe example, but as he mentioned, Siemens and AWS and others could have been those that could have been mentioned too. He, he had a huge reputation, didn't he, for building partnerships with very similar companies in Melbourne and throughout Australia. But to make them the centrepiece of a university's engagement with what is relevant to its future students and bringing it to bear not only on its research agenda and its teaching and learning agenda is, well, it's not unique, but it's a very strong differentiator that, that, that Alex himself brings that he seems yeah. to be wanting to bring to Aston and would probably make it still quite differentiated on an Australian scene, I think, wouldn't it? Yes. And I think bringing it into the learning and teaching space, I think that's really critical. And, you know, we know so much more about learning and teaching post-pandemic. And we spent a lot of time thinking about what's the best student experience, particularly now that we've moved to online hybrid high-flex spaces. 
And it comes out loud and clear. Um, we, we, we did a little bit of research post-pandemic and, uh, you know, about what's happening globally in, in terms of trends and employability and being prepared for the career outcomes is still really critical and even more so because students are very, they're really weighing up the costs of going to university. Think about costs of living in the UK. Think about costs of living in Australia. There's a lot of pressure on that. So if you're going to take a university, if a real person, the real student you know, is going to take, take on a university degree, they want to be really, they want to be really confident that they're going to be prepared for that career. And so I think by, by bringing industry into the courses, um, and, and that's, that is happening in Australia as well. You, you, you see a number of universities, you know, uh, Pascal at, at um, Swinburne University has got a very strong moonshot in that space. Um, we see that uh, Monash is very well partnered with industry on all levels. Um, right across QUT, Federation, we've got some great, um, and Western Sydney, we've got some great examples of, of universities that absolutely embed themselves. Um, Western Sydney has a, uh, shares a tower, um, a building with uh, an industry partner and the students actually go and study and learn there. And it's only a few floors up and they can actually be involved with the industry. So I think, I think we've got pockets of that. But I, I, I liked I liked Alex's vision and um, boldness of it, if you like, you know, to integrate it at all levels. It, it was um, an exciting. I wish I wish sometimes I did the video versions of these podcasts because I find it fascinating when I interview people that you see their faces and the eyes light up when they talk about things that they're really passionate about. I, I assume it comes through in just the audio for people that have only seen that as well. But when he was talking about that permeability in that area of Birmingham and the, the idea that you might have globally leading tech companies working with researchers in a university precinct with, I think he called it the first world and the third world being introduced to each other with some of the lowest SES environments of Birmingham right next door to this, this high-tech yeah. innovation precinct. It really connected those two things that you said, I think, that you have always known about Alex from before the interview of maybe I said the thing about more about his predisposition towards technology, but you talked about his predisposition towards equity. And I'm sure that's an important part of the Aston vision that really caught your attention as well. Is that right? Yeah, I think they said 45% of their students come from um, household incomes of less than £25,000. You know, so so you're definitely dealing with a, a non-traditional student. And, and I think Australia, if you think about our political situation, in uh, our focus with your court, I think equity students are also going to be a big part of that. And I think what what a lot of the conversation is, though, is how do you support equity students? Because equity students, you know, are, are by nature, they're, they're often working, they're often uh, studying part-time, they're often juggling families, they're doing, they might be living regionally, remotely, or they might be juggling two jobs in the metro space. So you've got, you, how do you support these students in a, in a really effective way? And I know the government's, you know, our government's sort of thinking about that. I'm sort of hopeful that they go with metrics similar to what um, Alex was talking about, which is employability and social mobility, as opposed to perhaps putting some more um, uh, metrics that are, are fit for purpose for, for the school lever. I think we have to think quite differently in this space about the, the metrics to measure uh, how we're supporting equity students. 
I think that's a really good call there, Sue. I, I was quite um, surprised with what Alex had to say about that. And look, I'd, I'd observe the emergence of the new social mobility rating or index in the UK. And he quoted Aston as being number two in the country on that score. I know that the, the university that I think was highest rated is Bradford's in the north, in Yorkshire, in the north of England, which is a similar genre of university to Aston. And similarly, in a, a very old traditional industrial area and a really quite poor area and a um, very diverse part of, of, of the UK. The idea that you measure a university by the value that it adds in transforming lives for people once they've been supported to complete and graduate and then go on and get jobs rather than the reputation that you have for recruiting and enrolling students by being an attractive place with some historical research couldn't be more relevant to our equity and inclusion missions I'm sure and to have to have Alex making that sort of measure he didn't say anything else about rankings or about um, you know non-impactful research excellence he talked about everything being about impact in partnerships and everything about how the teaching and learning agenda can transform lives and he set up those measures as the um as the as the north star and the measure of whether aston succeeds in advance of his strategy and in advance to putting it into into play and i think that's a really innovative and bold step and i really commend him and the university for seeking to differentiate and seeking to make its focus in that sort of way i think it's a great call Agreed. And if you go back to the university mission statements, the mission statements are not usually, if, you know, to, to climb the research rankings. It's not usually, it's, it's usually about transformation. It's usually about, you know, having an impact on society. So I think it's potentially what really what, what Alex is talking about is, is really walking the talk here. Well, I think it's great for us in Australia. You know, it's great for you and I because we know Alex to have a friend in another part of the world. I think it's great for Australian universities to have the potential of having such strong friends in other parts of the world with the, the message that I heard Alex finish on was the commitment for for Aston to be part of global collaboration. He would like to see the sort of innovation precinct that he's setting up in Birmingham. I know that he's got plans for doing something similar in London, and he'd like to make similar connections with the sort of things like that that could happen in um, Australia and other parts of the world. And whether it's a, a, a vertical tower in Parramatta at Western Sydney or I don't know whether it's um, the Cremorne area of Melbourne, dare I say. I think there's some fantastic parts of our nation that have got really innovative companies co-located with really entrepreneurial universities that are not too far away from places of great social needs and inclusion where universities can really make a difference in our cities. And that's all that we've got time for this week on Phoenix. Thanks, Matt.